Good afternoon, and welcome to the Middle East Forum's webinar series featuring guest interviews hosted by the Forum's project directors. My name is Benjamin Baird. I currently lead the Forum's advocacy efforts, and I'll be your host today in a stimulating look back at the early years of the Iraq War with our very special guest, Ambassador L. Paul Bremer. Mr. Bremer was the first administrator of the Coalition Provisional Authority in Iraq from 2003 to 2004, and made many of the key decisions affecting the country's future. Formerly a Foreign Service Officer, he has held various domestic posts with the U.S. State Department, including the coordinator at the Bureau of Counterterrorism. He is the author of My Year in Iraq, The Struggle to Build a Future of Hope. Thank you, Mr. Bremer, for joining us today. Nice to be with you, Ben. Good to see you looking well. Um, before we launch off, I, th I thought it'd be useful to say a couple of things about the situation in Iraq overall, the strategic situation, and in particular, what my directions were from President Bush. Iraq was, and we can discuss that in more detail, basically a shattered country, politically, economically, and morally. They had been under this brutal dictator for decades, and that had real uh, implications for the latitude, the kind of problems we were going to have to address. So from the president, I got basically two directions. My job was to help the Iraqis recover control of their own country because they'd been under a dictatorship and that meant control politically and economically. And try to put them, second command from the president was to put the Iraqis on a path towards representative or democratic government. So in our discussion today, it's important to keep those points in, in place. This was a shattered country, and I had two jobs I had to try to get them done. In particular, move them on a path towards representative government. Thank you. I think that's a very important context, so thank you for that. Uh, I'll jump in with my first question here, um, a bright moment in the Iraq War. Your announcement of the capture of Iraqi dictator Saddam Hussein. It's an iconic moment in American history. Uh, after years of, of failing to locate and capture Osama bin Laden, the news really of capturing Saddam Hussein was a morale booster for the American public and our Iraqi partners. Uh, our audience may recall your three words, we got him, uh, when remembering the moment they learned about Saddam's capture. But as the political authority in Iraq, when and how did you learn about Saddam's apprehension? Well, at first, it was a long, hard search. We looked, particularly the U.S. military was on the lookout for him. We kept getting rumors that he was driving a taxi cab in Baghdad or he was some other country. We never we never knew until uh, I think it was a Saturday morning in December of 2003 uh, they began to get a little closer. And uh, at about midnight Baghdad time, uh, that Saturday to Sunday, uh, December 13th, I think it was, uh, I was told that I had my, my security detail said I had a telephone call back at my office on a secure phone. Anyway, we had to put a motorcade together and get back to my office. We got there about one o'clock in the morning, and I had a call from General John Abizade, who was the commander of the forces in Iraq, saying, we think we have captured Saddam Hussein. Now, the problem, there were several problems. First of all, was how were we going to be sure we got him? 
that it was him because we knew he used doubles. Mm. So they had done a preliminary inspection with some scars or markings that they knew Saddam had and those checked out. But Abizade and I agreed it was important to get the suspect uh, from where he was caught, which, which was in the northern town of Tikrit, back down to Baghdad, where we could put him in front of some Iraqis who could definitively uh, uh, confirm this was Saddam Hussein. And uh, so that's what we did. Uh, and uh, I, we kept it secret. We got him down to Baghdad that uh, early that morning, maybe four o'clock in the morning. Uh, showed him to his former vice president, who was one of our high value prisoners who thought this was Saddam Hussein. Uh, but we also needed to uh, try to get a DNA test to be, confirm, you know, that it, that's who he was. The problem with that was that the, the nearest place we had the DNA lab that could do the examination was in Germany. And uh, uh, Abizade and I agreed there was no way we could hold this secret. So in any case, uh, we uh, we decided we would have a joint press conference. I would do that with the commander of the forces in Iraq, uh, General Sanchez. And that's when uh, I, I, I was sitting backstage. We knew there was a very crowded auditorium with literally hundreds of journalists from all over the world. And one of my British uh, associates said, I said to him, you speak Arabic, what, what is an appropriate thing to say? And he said, well, why don't you just never mind the Arabic, just say you got him. So it was his idea. And I went out and said, ladies and gentlemen, we got him. I see. And and that it's a, quite an iconic phrase that's been repeated. I think it's even an internet meme. It's been used online in movies, uh, quite a moment. Uh, so, okay, so after early victories in uh, OIF, Operation Iraqi Freedom, an insurgency was formed that challenged both coalition forces and the legitimacy of the Iraqi government. Today, many politicians and journalists, or at least some, blame coalition provisional authority policies implemented very early on as the primary catalyst behind the insurgency and the slow pace of reconstruction in Iraq. Of course, I'm talking about CPA number order number one, debathification, which you mentioned, and CPA order number two, which effectively uh, dismantled the Iraqi military. So let's start again, go back to debathification. Um, why was this necessary for a free and stable Iraq? Uh, and did this order strip Iraq of the bureaucratic know-how, the experience necessary to rebuild the country as, as critics claim? Okay, well, let's go through this. Let's let's remember that the Ba'ath Party was consciously and publicly modeled on the Nazi Party when it was founded at the end of World War II, and it practiced had the same practices as Hitler's Nazi Party had. It was it ruled by brutality, cruelty, torture, and summary justice. So most Iraqis in 2003 had never had an experience living with a democracy. We have to remember how hard it was going to be, and we'll come back to that later, I'm sure, to, to build out a, uh, an under, under structure for democratic life. The Ba'ath Party uh, had been condemned by the Department of State before the war ever happened, and the Department of State had stated in a study they did with Iraqis, thousands of Iraqis, that there could be no place in a free Iraq for the Ba'ath Party. 
given its history. Now, we estimate our intelligence service is estimated that about 10% of Iraqis were members of the Ba'ath Party. There were 27 million Iraqis, so that would give you 2.7 million members of the party. But the draft uh, of the debathification decree, which was done uh, before I came into the into the government, which before I was recalled, um, the draft was drafted such that it affected only 10% of the 10%. So it wound up being 1% of a 10th of the of Iraqi population, some uh, 27,000 people total. Mm -hmm. But what it said was the people in that party had to leave the party and they had to get out of the government. But they were free to do whatever they wanted to economically. They set up a newspaper. They have a radio broadcast if they wanted to. They can open a business, but they couldn't stay on top jobs in the government. And it, it affected the top people. And during the decree also made it possible for me to issue plenary uh, uh, override and allow people to stay in a ministry if we felt his or her um, presence there was very, for example, the people who did the administration of these ministries would be the only place you could get an order of who are the people, what is their salaries? Mm -hmm. So we kept a lot of, I made scores of exceptions to let people stay in. Uh, the, the idea which has been written about that this somehow collapsed the Iraqi government is simply nonsense. I, unlike most journalists, I, regularly visited all 25 Iraqi ministries and they were full of dedicated Iraqi civilians who were doing their job. What collapsed, what, what made them less efficient was this, there was, no inter, there was no national telephone system. You couldn't pick up the phone in Baghdad and call somebody into Crete unless you worked for Saddam Hussein. There was no uh, automatic transfer of funds in the banking system. You couldn't ask a bank in Baghdad to send some money to Mosul unless they put it in a car and drove it there. There were no computers in any ministry I saw except the Ministry of, uh, of uh, Information. So you had basically no modern capability in these, in these ministries. You have to also remember that because our troops did not have orders to suppress the looting that came when Baghdad fell to, to the army, uh, many of the ministries had been physically destroyed by looting. Uh, for example, the Ministry of Interior, which obviously was a hated ministry from Baghdad, from, from Saddam's time, uh, was pretty much destroyed. The Ministry of Finance, which is the most important ministry in the government, had room for only half of the staff. So for the next 14 months, the most important ministry had to work in shifts because there was no place uh, to put half of the people. So it, it is, it's important to recognize that, and we'll come back at the end about how, how Baghdad is today, uh, the uh, enormous response that we got from the Iraqi government people who were not subject to debathification. Now, I will confess to one mistake. I made the mistake of handing the uh, preliminary implementation of this narrowly drawn uh, decree 
I turned it over to Iraqi politicians. And that was a mistake because then they started using it to score their get even points with people they didn't like in the government. Mm -hmm. And I had to take the authority back to the uh, coalition. But but on the whole, it was uh, absolutely essential to the long term stability of Iraq that we uh, outlaw the Ba'ath Party. Thank you. You you quickly followed uh, CPA Order One with CPA Order Number Two, uh, the dissolution of entities. Uh, why was this order necessary, and did the sudden massive numbers of unemployed military age males contribute to the insurgency? Well, first of all. Uh, one minor lexicological mistake was using the word disbanding because actually there was no army. Uh, so, so we need to talk about what is the nature of the army, what was the status of the army, and what were the choices going forward with the army. Sure. First of all, the nature of the army is important to keep in mind. Uh, it's something that most Americans would find quite shocking, and they should. The, the all, you're talking about an army of roughly 700,000 of which some 300,000 were draftees. This was, this was not a volunteer army. This was a drafted, drafted army. Of those 300,000, most of them were Shia. The officer corps, which was, if you could do the math, slightly larger, actually, than the draftees. The officer corps was mm. predominantly Sunni, both Kurd and Iraqi uh, and uh, uh, Arab Sunnis. Mm. Uh, the army officers abused, brutalized, and uh, dealt very roughly with the enlistees. The army had been Saddam's main instrument of suppression of the Kurdish who live in the north of, uh, of Iraq in a uh, uh, what the UN called a genocidal war against Kurds, including the use, by the way, of chemical weapons against his own civilians. So we knew that Saddam had and had used weapons of mass destruction. Uh, the army was also used to suppress a Shia uprising in the South, which took place after the first Gulf War. I'll tell you, Ben, the first week I was there in, in Iraq, I went down to a town called Hilla, uh, about 40 miles south of Baghdad, where our army had just uncovered a, the first of a mass, many mass, mass graves. Some 30,000 people were, were in that mass grave that I saw at Hilla. Over the next 14 months, we would find th more than 300 other mass graves in uh, various parts of Iraq. Uh, the, this is how Saddam used his army. So this was the nature of the army. Now, the status of the army. The status of the army was there was no army. That's why disbanding was the wrong term. Mm. General Abizade, the man I mentioned uh, a little earlier, uh, stated in, uh, in early April that there was not a single unit of the Saddam's army standing to arms anywhere in the country. In other words, the, when everybody saw which way this uh, war was going against Iraq, uh, they deserted. The Shia grabbed their guns, took whatever they could find in the uh, barracks that interested them, maybe a window or a door, and went home. So the status of the army was, meant that the real question, which is the third question, is what do we do? Do we recall the old army? Do we build a new army? 
Well, some of our military officers at a lower level were talking around about recalling the army or elements of the army. When the Kurds heard that, they called me to come see them in Kurdistan and I flew up to talk to them and they made very clear to me that if we recalled the army, the Kurds would secede from Iraq. Now, Iraq, that would lead to an immediate civil war. They'd already had wars between the Kurds and the, Sun and the Shia and uh, uh, Sunnis uh, in, in the 80s when Saddam used that army to, to conduct genocide. So if they said, if you call them back, we're gonna secede, which certainly would lead to a civil war, quite possibly to a larger regional war because of the Kurdish uh, interests in other countries. Uh, the Shia who were cooperating with us under instructions from Grand Ayatollah Ali Sistani uh, had the same reaction. They said, those are, the, those are the guys, that's the army that killed tens of thousands of Shia back in after the first Gulf War. Uh, we, we can't tolerate that. So it was clear to us, and in fact, this decision was made before I came back in the government that we, we would not recall the army we would rebuild the army or build a new army. And that is what we did. We started training the first battalion right away. We issued severance payments, one-time severance payments to all of the draftees. And we put all but the top officers in the old army on a pension, on pensions that were calculated to be twice the level they would have gotten from Saddam Hussein. Mm. Now, uh, I don't, deny that it's possible that a number of these, particularly the officer corps, eventually went over and joined the, uh, the uh, dis dissidents, the, the terrorists as they became. Mm -hmm. If they did that, it wasn't because they didn't have a choice. They could have gone off and taken their, lived on their pensions or spent the money putting, a, putting together a build, you know, a business for, mm -hmm. I don't know, refrigerators, whatever. Sure. And, and I would add that one, at one point in April 2004, uh, the Marines, without coordination with the civilian authority, uh, recalled a battalion of the former army to help them try to subdue an uprising in Fallujah, in the western Anbar province. That battalion went in at, at the Marines at request to the town of Fallujah and immediately went over to the enemy and became part of the problem. So the idea of recalling the army simply uh, didn't take place. And the army that we trained, that army uh, that we trained uh, is the army that eventually defeated Al Qaeda in Iraq in 2009. That's right. Um, okay, so looking back, um, the August 2021, I'm going to make a comparison here. Uh, the August 2021 withdrawal of coalition forces from Afghanistan was a disaster on a political, humanitarian, <clears throat> excuse me, and strategic level. The Taliban rolled into Afghanistan, as we know, and unopposed and quickly reestablished an Islamist government. On the other hand, conversely, Iraq's democratic institutions, though deeply flawed, remain intact today. Why do you think the Iraqi government remains intact despite so many challenges? In other words, what distinguishes Iraq from Afghanistan? 
Well, you know, uh, actually, by coincidence, I lived in Afghanistan for two years, long, long time ago. It was mm -hmm. my first foreign uh, posting back in the 60s. Uh, but I'm not an expert about Afghanistan nor, nor about Iraq. But I think the thing that made the big difference was exactly what President Bush saw, foresaw, which was to give the Iraqis a chance to establish representative government, which we did. The Iraqis wrote an, a, a constitution themselves, wasn't written by us, which they then put to a referendum and which was approved by the votes of some 12 million Iraqis. And they lived under that constitution, which provides for separation of powers, balance of power between parliament and the, legis the, the legislature and the executive. We established the independence of the judiciary uh, as part of uh, uh, as part of our work as a coalition. So the, the the Iraqis had exactly what President Bush foresaw them having, which was a constitutional road to representative democracy. They've had six democratic elections since two thousand five, and six successive peaceful transfers of power to prime ministers. I, I don't deny that there's a lot, of, a lot of problems in Iraq today, but they, uh, they had a lot of success. Uh, critics, again, of the Iraq war would argue that today, Iraq is merely an extension of the Islamic Republic of Iran. Uh, do you think this is a fair assessment and did you experience any early signs that Iraq would fall into Iran's orbit? But let me let me start with the second question. Sure. Uh, the Iranians were very, very quiet and, and not active when I was there. I think undoubtedly, undoubtedly, the leaders of Iran at that time had much in mind the fact that by 2003, they had a large American army on their eastern border with mm -hmm. Afghanistan and a large, larger American army uh, uh, to the west in Iraq. And they had been labeled along with Saddam as the axis of evil. So the American intelligence, uh, I think, showed that uh, this was the period in which the Iranians cut back if they didn't stop their own uh, effort to get nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I'm not privy to that intelligence itself, but that's what I understand the situation was. So, so the, there was no early uh, signal that the Iranians were very active while I was there. It is certainly the case, at least from what I read and, and hear, that they are more active now in uh, Iraq than they were before, and that sh should be a that needs to be um, taken seriously. Sure. Next, I'd like to ask, how do you feel about the idea of nation building and democratization today? Well, you know, nation building and democracy, the promotion of democracy is pretty central to the American dream, the American deal we made in the end back in 1776. Hmm. After all, it was about democracy. We were not we were suffering, not greatly, but suffering as a colony under a, a monarchy. So it's kind of in our bloodstream, this idea. And we've, we've been successful most of the time for 240 years. Uh, where it's possible, we, 
we should always be in favor of representative government, whether you call it democratic. I always use the words representative just to make it clear that we didn't have a preferred uh, path other than that the people should choose their government. Mm. And if you go back to our Declaration of Independence, we, we say that all individuals have those rights. And that's been pretty consistent in American history. So I would say I feel that it is a good thing to have. And from personal experience, it's damn hard to make it happen. Sure. Uh, you mentioned the Kurds earlier, um, negotiating with them about the Iraqi military. Uh, in a 2017 interview with Kurdistan 24, you called the Kurdish Peshmerga uh, the most consistent and capable allies to American interests in Iraq. What did you mean by that comment? Well, the Peshmerga, which is the name they used for the, their independent Kurdish forces who were very substantial and very capable and very well trained, uh, they had worked under American uh, 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 training supervision between the two wars, between the first war and the second war. And so we had a great deal of experience and they had a great deal of experience of our military working together, which gave their political leaders, uh, the Kurdish political leaders, substantial weight in discussions about the future of Iraq. They had after all been essentially running the Kurdish region themselves for most of those 12 years. They had more experience in running government ministries than anybody in Baghdad because the people in Baghdad had been working directly for Saddam Hussein on a different sort of set of ma different matrix. Mm -hmm. So the Kurds had experience in semi-autonomy that was really very uh, much ahead of anybody else, which is what I meant by what I quoted me in, in that interview. Sure. Uh, okay, in our last uh, about five minutes here, I want to shift focus from Iraq to, to terrorism. You served as the coordinator for counterterrorism at the State Department uh, from 86 to 89. Many Americans tend to view Islamist terrorism within the limits of the post-Cold War era uh, and the war on terror. Yet America faced very unique challenges during the 1980s from a very determined enemy. Uh, tell us about the terrorist threat during your time at the Bureau for Counterterrorism. What sets this period apart from the threat we face today? But if you look at terrorism, it first really surfaced, Arab-sponsored terrorism surfaced in the uh, after the war of, of 1967 uh, it, with the hijackings that took place in the early 70s. Hmm. But terrorism then became more prevalent actually as an, as an element of communism than it was Islamism. If you looked at the terrorists who were active in the 70s and 80s, the ones that I was dealing with uh, in France, Belgium, Italy, Germany, they were basically Marxists who were seeking to make a point and they made their point by killing not hundreds of thousands, but dozens of, of uh, innocent people at a time. Usually their intention was to draw attention to their political um, manifestos. So the shift started to come in the 80s with the Marine Corps barracks bombing in 1983 by Hezbollah right. and subsequent some other, uh, some other attacks 
including Pan Am 103, which was at the end of the decade, 1988. Uh, I chaired the National Commission on Terrorism in the 1990s, and we focused on this shift very intently and said to the president and the Congress and the people of America in our report in June of 2000, that we faced a new, very virulent and much more serious threat from Islamic extremism because these terrorists wanted to kill us, as we said in our report, by the hundreds of thousands. And indeed, the intention of the, bag, the first of the world Trade Center bombings had been to kill 250,000 people we found because we captured the people who conducted that attack. Mm -hmm. So there was a big shift from the 80s into the 90s. And that, that's the one we, uh, we still face today. Were there any signs uh, during that time that there would one day be a spectacular attack, coordinated attack on U.S. soil? That they were yes, in this yes. The first, the first World Trade Center bombing was in 1983. I'm uh, sorry, 93. Mm -hmm, yeah. And uh, it that was the intention to topple one building into the other and kill 250,000 people. We had attacks on uh, on a army uh, base in Jordan. We had uh, uh, attacks on the American embassies in. Uh, Kenya and Tanzania all, all happened at the end of the 80s. These were mass attacks or with the attention of mass casualty attacks. Sure. So very quickly here in, in our last minute, um, again, looking back, how do you assess the war on terror, um, terror uh, today? Um, there hasn't been another 9-11, but the, the threat certainly exists. What are your thoughts on that? I think we're better equipped to meet it now. We've had some unfortunate experiences in how we learned those lessons. But I think the coordination, particularly among the State Department, the Defense Department, and the intelligence community is much better than it was uh, 20 years ago. And the threat is certainly still there, particularly one needs to be worried about the Iranians now. Uh, but we have tools which we can use that we didn't have 20 years ago. Sure. Um, that's about all the time we have today. Uh, I want to thank our guest, Mr. Paul Bremer, for taking the time to assess the early Iraq war with us. It's been a fascinating and engaging uh, discussion with you here today. I also want to thank our audience, of course, for tuning in today and staying sub subscribed to the Middle East Forum's menu of webinar offerings. If you have any questions about this interview today, please feel free to email me at action at meforum.org. Again, that's action at memiddleeastforum.org. And a reminder that you can find all of our webinars on the Middle East Forum's YouTube channel, on our website, and posted to our social media pages. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. Thanks, Ben.